In today's episode, we open our Bibles to Exodus chapter 30. God gives Moses detailed instructions for the construction of the altar of incense, which will go inside the tabernacle, the bronze basin just outside the tent, and rules concerning incense and anointing oil. It's also in this section that God commands a census tax, atonement money, as it is written, of a half a shekel to be contributed as an offering. <laughs> Good morning. Today is Wednesday, December 21st, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word. Each weekday morning, we explore the Holy Scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is sponsored by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Learn more about their translating and publishing work at lhfmissions.org. Well, to walk with us as we look through Exodus chapter 30, I'm pleased to welcome this morning my guest, the Reverend Brant Hoffman, pastor of Christ Lutheran Church and School in Coos Bay, Oregon. Pastor Hoffman, good morning. Welcome to the program. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So I did say that right, Coos Bay, Oregon. Whereabouts is that located, and uh, what's going on at Christ Lutheran Church and School? Well, we are located on the southern Oregon coast, so um, uh, meaning I'm closer to California than Washington. And um, here we have this congregation, uh, not this particular building, but we've been around here for over 100 years. And um, we've had a school in the community for, this is our 29th year. And I also serve as the school headmaster. And so um, there's a, you know, we're just a really a, a integrated part of our community here. And it's, it's pretty great. Wow, it sounds like you have your hands full. You know, a lot of pastors this time of year are busy. I couldn't imagine having the duties of a headmaster on top of all my pastoral duties uh, I'm sure, though, God is blessing your ministry. Uh, anything exciting coming up for the Christmas tide season, or are you just looking to uh, relax, relax a little bit after this busy uh, festival time? Well, I mean, uh, for this week, like tonight is our last midweek Advent service, and then we've got our Christmas Eve service on Saturday, and of course Christmas falls on a Sunday, but we have service on Christmas no matter what. And um, that's always exciting. And then I think you're right. I think I'm probably next week going to chill out a little bit and um, maybe relax for a little while and uh, kind of uh, plan, start planning for Lent. <laughs> well, yeah, that's that's how it is, right? Right. We, we get maybe a week, maybe of a little bit of relaxation, but then lots of Lent planning. So. Well, mm -hmm. that's great. Well, I'm glad that you've taken some time out of what I'm sure is a busy schedule to talk with us today about Exodus chapter 30. Before we get into the text, though, I'd like to invite you to start us off with a prayer. Oh, absolutely. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God, we thank you for your word because your word is truth and for this opportunity that you have given us through KFUO and thy strong word to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to the masses all over the world for the long history of this ministry and for the, uh, the ability to, to share in God's word with people. We pray today that you would bless us with discernment and grace in your word. Help us to always be directed unto Christ. 
For these and all things, we humbly thank and praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are talking about uh, Exodus chapter 30, and we've been moving from inside to outside as God gives Moses instructions on how to create and, and construct the elements of the tabernacle and the courtyard, etc. So before we get into the altar of incense, which is our first section for today, uh, would you like to lay the groundwork for those who maybe haven't listened in a little while? Uh, what's been going on and set the stage for them for our discussion this morning? Well, absolutely. Um, when uh, when uh, I was first asked about uh, doing this chapter, it was pretty it was pretty great because um, Exodus, you know, it's 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 a pretty it's a very important book, and it's got so much in it. And today, especially, um, I I'm recalling uh, Horace Hummel uh, something that he was saying because um, he was saying that Exodus thirty is kind of in the middle of a really unique set of books because they're he says they're largely overlooked and i agree i believe he also rightly attributed this to what he called a liberal and protestant prejudices against the very specific look of worship that is both liturgical and sacramental in in wow. favor of creating a very popular opinion that worship is just adiaphora to the extent that both the form and the substance are relative. Um, and well, so, that's and a, that is certainly that. some quote. Wow. Yeah, he, um, uh, he's, <laughs> he's uh, well, of course, we all know that he is uh, an extremely uh, long-standing, uh, or God rest his soul, um, uh, who's written, and he was the one who was so active against the higher criticism all the way through in the 70s and following, and so... He uh, he came out with some really great stuff, and um, and I and I tend to agree with his assessment because generally it was an accepted view along with the New Testament writers. Uh, the view of worship in Exodus was paramount in understanding typology in Christian worship. Uh, uh, the more modern prejudices against worship kind of stripped Christians of the otherworldly or robust view of worship and stripped an appreciation for the scriptures that we Lutherans confess to be inerrant. So, you know, for us, it's, it's, uh, it's really important how we, uh, how we view it. And um, also in, in uh, reading Luther on Exodus, of course, you know, he was an, an Old Testament scholar. Um, he, he makes a really ironic point that I think Dr. Hummel was making also, because he wrote in Exodus, uh, when the world was now full and sunk in blindness so that men scarcely knew any longer what sin was or where death came from, God brings Moses forward with the law and selects a special people in order to enlighten the world again through them and by the law to reveal sin anew. He therefore organizes this people with all kinds of laws and separates it from all other people. He has them built a tent and begins a form of worship. He appoints princes and officials and provides his people splendidly with both laws and men to rule them both in the body before the world and in the spirit before God. So in essence, we're studying a largely forgotten book with a theme of God's response to people suffering due to forgetting God's word. <laughs> right. So, it's uh it's really uh it's really fascinating to me. 
Well, I think so, too. One of the things that we brought out just a few episodes ago is that as we hear these detailed descriptions of how God wants his worship to proceed and his temple to be built, or in this case, sorry, his tabernacle to be built, we see that God does this not just for the sake of typology either. It's also just for the sake of beauty, right? It's for the glory of God and certainly points forward to God's activity and Christ who will come, but also it's just beautiful. And and there's nothing wrong with having beauty in worship, beauty that exemplifies and magnifies the Lord. And so I just love as we go through these details that we can bring those things out. And another reason why, just commenting on, um, I guess, your idea or uh, Hummel's idea that this is largely forgotten is because like a lot of the detailed passages in Scripture or the lists or the genealogies, people seem to get bogged down by all of the detail or even the repetition. For instance, in just a few chapters, we're going to now start to move into the building of these things. Right now, we're just getting the instructions for building, but in the building of it, it all repeats. It's it's like almost word for word, and that's certainly teaching us something about how they followed God's order. But the fact that it's repeating it all is significant because these things are important. So I'm glad that you're pleased to be discussing this particular text today. Um, Anything else before I read, I'd like to start just with perhaps the first natural break, which is verses 1 through 10. Anything else before I read that? Oh, yeah. I just You kind of sparked something when you were talking about the repetition. Um, Like Dr. Seleska, he, he said... You know, what people might find um, repetition and boring, as Christians, we see God being consistent. And I, and I always liked him saying that because yeah. it, it reminds me that, you know, it seems repetitious to us, but the truth is, is it's God being consistent with his people. Wow, that's great. That's definitely something to keep in mind because God is consistent and the repetition is for emphasis, too. I tell you what, I'm going to read chapter 30, verses 1 through 10, and then we'll move on. Here we go. You shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length, a cubit its breadth. It shall be square, and two cubits. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top around its side and its horns. And you shall make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make two golden rings for it. Under its molding on two opposite sides of it, you shall make them. And they shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony, where I will meet you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it, a regular incense offering before Yahweh throughout your generations. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering, and you shall not pour a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. With the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once a year, Throughout your generations, it is most holy to Yahweh. So we have this description of this beautiful altar of incense. It's kind of squ- it is square on the top, and it's uh, made of gold. 
And, and just before you dig in with us, I just love the fact that we have these practical elements, which are the golden rings and the acacia poles. And, and they're just practical. They, I don't know that they have any theological significance. They're literally there just to carry the thing around as they travel through the wilderness. And yet they too are set apart, covered in gold. I just, I just love that little detail. But take us through it, right? We have this altar upon which to burn incense. Incense being pretty important for probably theological and practical reasons. What do you think, brother? Oh, absolutely. Uh, well, the altar is, you know, it's made of shatim or the acacia wood. And it's something Yahweh, he's going to call for all the wooden objects in the temple to be acacia. And that's really interesting uh, because, again, it shows consistency. Um, he's like, this is the way it's going to be. And couple that, he's got what? The exact measurements for each implement, including the horns um, uh, and the incense. Even the placement of the altar is significant. Um, uh, so here we have this magnificent uh, view. Uh, and it's going to be gold. It's going to be amazing looking. And, and then it, it comes into the typology of sanctuary, of the sanctuary arrangement. Because first of all, it's placed outside the curtain, out in the open, where uh, it can be seen, heard, smelled, and focused upon. But behind the altar, behind the curtain, is a place where God will encounter the priest through the ark of the Ha'adut, the, the testimony of God's law. This working, wow, mysterious. You know, it will indeed benefit all the people. I, I was listening to you talking to uh, Dr. Baker about that. And it was really, really, you know, because he would go back there and they're like, well, what if he dies? You know, and they would tie a rope around his ankle, stuff like that. Just saying, you know, we're not going to go back there, but what if something happens, you know? <laughs> so, um, but this is happening, you know, some of it happens outside the eyes and the ears of the people. Yet, they will become full beneficiaries of it, and St. Matthew says as much in Matthew 6.18. And so, as, as we move over there, uh, we're not just now talking about the, what the temple is going to look like. I mean, um, uh, the people who are called in 7 to 10, the priests, as you, and as you also discussed with uh, Reverend Duke, I mean, um, we're also designed to look a certain way now. His description of those vestments, you know, that just blew my mind listening to him talk about those because he was totally right. They were they were glorious. I mean, they were um, they were something to behold. Like this is very special, and and there and he wasn't just some regular guy. Uh, these he didn't look like some regular guy. And uh, these men would be transformed in their appearance in order to reflect, you know, their vocation. Um, each vestment was, it would also serve for what it means to stand before God in the resurrection. Being clothed by God is a frequent theme in the Bible. And to have his priests like that um, is really, is, you know, is really a good reminder that, uh, like Job, uh, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban, you know, those kind of languages are Isaiah um, and and as a bride adorns herself with, I mean, with jewels, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt my God. He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness, right? So you have all these themes of God clothing us in something even more glorious than the jewels and the gold. 
but his righteousness, but it sure does a great job of conveying the message of what God does for those who are before him. And, you know, once we move into the resurrection of Christ, we're going to see that that's, that's going to be very important for all of us. So, and while they're all in there, they, they have a, a they're, they're serving in this specific way, the specific protocols they have to follow, right? Um, burning the incense while Aaron is tending the lamps day and night. And, and we'll, there's more on that later in the chapter. But first is the main instruction on the offerings. The offerings are supposed to be proper and not tara, unauthorized or strange offerings. They're forbidden. And it's interesting, um, as I kind of looked around on this, the tara is a reference again in Deuteronomy, Psalms, and Isaiah, and they all are referring to strange or foreign gods and warning against mixing them with what Yahweh Eloheinu has called for. So in the Exodus passage, we're being warned to keep not only the priestly office pure, but the practices must be pure as defined by God as purity. So that's a really, that's a really interesting part. Um, the temple was the place to have an appointed encounter with God. And we'll see throughout this chapter, the Lord does not skimp in creating a space that gives a glorious, the faithful, nothing less than a picture of paradise. And of course, uh, the next section has a lot to do with another dimension of what it means to not only construct this, but also to tear and even maintain it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I love that you're bringing out the description here, which gives us an insight into what it looks like. I mean, it draws our mind's eye to God's heavenly kingdom, which he is dwelling amongst his people on earth with, with these just sort of uh, samples, these little little appetizers of what is to come. But undoubtedly, the people with this going on in the middle of their encampment would just be in awe of the fact that God is living among them. He's not some far off God, but rather he's right there. We can look at him. We can go. We can talk to him through the priests. We can have access to God in a way that was unheard of. Even in their 400 years of slavery, they, they didn't have this kind of access, but now their God has freed them from the Egyptians, and now he lives among them. And I think that would have been something that's very beautiful and cathartic and incarnate with them in ways that the false gods of the Egyptians, where you basically had to do your best to please them and hope they would do something for you, this isn't what's going on here. We have God living and dwelling among them. Oh, yeah. And I loved, again, the point that you made with uh, Dr. Baker with, uh, you know, where does this gold come from? <laughs> you know? right. I mean, it was, it was you know, uh, basically ransom to them because they got, you know, after the plagues, they're like, just go, <laughs> just leave. And um, they could tell they angered this God and, and, and they walk out of there with all this Egyptian gold. And well, it wasn't for their own benefit. It would later become for the witness and the glory of God, you know, because even though Egyptians made things out of it, make no mistake, it was God's gold already. So, you know, this kind of stuff. And so, yeah, I mean, again, it builds to the glory and the beauty and the splendor and the majesty of this place. So it's kind of a, it's, it's really ironic, you know, because uh, 
the the Egyptians they worshipped those dead statues, right? And everybody could look at their god any time they wanted to, and then and they could get pretty much whatever they wanted out of him, and all this kind of stuff. And here, God's going, well, that's not really how we're going to do that. And so that's that's what I find to be so cool. Well, speaking of some of the loot they left Egypt with, why don't we add the next six verses, which is uh, entitled by the ESV uh, editors, the census tax. But I I think that's a weird way to phrase it. Let's read it and see what we think. Starting with verse 11. Yahweh said to Moses, when you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to Yahweh when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 jeriffs, half a shekel as an offering to Yahweh. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Yahweh's offering. The rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before Yahweh so as to make atonement for your lives. Wow, so this is an interesting section because it's almost as if God's saying, well, you know, now I've freed you, but... It's time to pay up. It's time to now atone for your sins. It's like ransoming themselves from the Lord. But even though it's phrased in that way, these funds, this this amount of uh, of gold and silver would have been used for the construction of the temple. But it's interesting, this, this census tax, as they say it, this atonement money. Uh, help us understand what's going on here. Yeah, this is a really good one, and and um, I often um, I often depending on who I've talked to about this, I get varied responses. But when it comes to maintaining this glorious temple, the true, very true, but often vulgar topic of money and caring and maintenance comes up, and it's important. And this includes the priests. Uh, God tells you to build something, and He calls a man to serve there. The natural response of the faithful should be focused on care and upkeep, right? I mean, as a side note, and I've read a few commentaries on this, and, and for some reason all of them seem to jump to the to this kind of conclusion that, oh, no, this was a voluntary offering of Exodus 25. But I, I don't think so um, for two reasons. One, Exodus 25, they call for an offering of living. It's, it's an offering of those of the heart and a mind so to do. and And this was... To you know, to be constructing this, but Exodus 30, there, there's no heart offering there. <laughs> this was a census. He's like count the people, and then is, they use the vanotnu, the the call perfect gives us this sense of to give, hand down, surrender. This is not God standing on a corner with a sign in a beggar's house. This is indeed a statement of reality. As in, this is going to happen as sure as the sun will rise tomorrow. And as Dr. Bartelt, you know, said once, um, it's an indicator of this past completed action. It's just a fact. It's, it is more effective than even the Nifal imperative because instead of God saying, hey, guys, get down there and, and make this happen. Rather, like all things, in this form, he's saying, hey, this is going to happen. 
it will be a conclusion. And um, so I don't need to shout at the sky to make the sunrise. It's reality. And as real as the eternal God who called for it. So, um, uh, and another interesting point is uh, uh, in this kind of census that the ESV, you know, called it a tax, but a ransom was better. Nobody's treated according to their means, but rather according to God's measure. He says, 20 years old and up, we'll do this. And it will not be uh, for this building, uh, but for the service of the temple, paying the Levites who have no land inheritance and for supplying the temple of the needed items. And, and the reason for this, this is the kicker. It's been done so that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. In other words, First and foremost, do not forget who is doing this, who it is for. And finally, don't forget why he does it. God did this, and it is to atone for your miserable lives. And of course, this is the language of Jesus as well. And when he instituted the Lord's Supper, don't forget who gave you this. And don't forget why. And, and it makes me wish more people studied this book. Uh, I, I went to a Baptist undergraduate college, and 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 I and I think about this, and and perhaps like the anti-sacramentarians could find peace in God's word regarding His sacraments because uh, Jesus uses this language. But you know, maybe that's just a topic for another day. But <laughs> it's it's so remarkable how God is calling them. And saying that, you know, this is going to be here and, and it, you're going to have to take care of everything that I, that I give to you. And, um, and, it's, and it won't be the last time, he says, you are now in, in the caretakers of my grace. I like that you brought out, though, which, was, which stood out to me, too, verse 15. The rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less. Now, there were some offerings that had different, you know, a sliding scale based on their socioeconomic status, I suppose, based on income, okay. like the burnt offering, Leviticus 1, you know, depending on, uh, uh, you know, how rich you were, you would give more or less. Uh, and we see this in other sacrifices, too. But here it is, as you pointed out, all equal. And if this is a ransom for your life, as it is described, a memorial or remembrance before Yahweh that basically you owe him your life, I think it's important that we see that whether they were rich or they were poor, they the, their lives were of equal value to God in terms of the half shekel. Certainly more valuable than a half shekel, but the fact that it was equal among all people, I think also speaks to the way God views all people equally. Oh, I think that's a great point. Um, and then that way, no rich person can say, well, I, I paid 50 shekels and, and you only paid one. And so I got a better atonement <laughs> or something. And, uh, right. you know, and so in it, and again, you know, God is no respecter of, of that. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's a, yeah, that's a really good point of, you know, his salvation is equal. He sees us all as the same and, uh, and his, salvation is the same too so that's that's what's so remarkable consistency <laughs> absolutely well i tell you what that's something that we can keep in our minds as we take just a few moments and hear some messages from our sponsors and others but when we come back pastor hoffman and i will keep going with exodus chapter 30 so we will see you on the other side 
These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me this morning is the Reverend Brant Hoffman, pastor of Christ Lutheran Church and School in Coos Bay, Oregon. Before we get back to the text, I want to remind you that if you have any questions or comments about today's show or any of our shows, uh, well, Thy Strong Word anyway, feel free to direct them to me at pastorboo at gmail.com. Or you can find me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash philboo. Now, Pastor Hoffman, before the break, we were just sort of ending a conversation about the census tax and the half shekel and how God views all people's lives equally. But also, before the Lord, we're all poor, miserable sinners, as we Lutherans often say, and we do owe our lives to the Lord. And giving a little money certainly isn't the way by which we are redeemed, but the fact that we need to be redeemed is an important concept that God is passing down to the people so that in and of itself points forward to the Christ. And we just got done talking about the altar of incense, so I can't help but remember uh, coming up soon, we'll be talking about it, uh, Zechariah offering the incense uh, offering at the temple during his, uh, during his time when his division was on duty, and of course the angel Gabriel coming and foretelling the coming of John and ultimately Jesus. Yeah. So, so yeah, lots of great connections here as we think about these altars we think well this is stuff of the old tabernacle or the old solomon's temple or herod's temple these things are all gone but no they still play such an important role in our understanding of god's salvation story through jesus absolutely i mean god is not frivolous you know with his word and he 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 teaches it for the purpose of us being blessed by it and to better understand him so you know Again, with this temple stuff kind of being largely overlooked, um, you know, uh, it's it's just kind of sad because you miss out on some of the robust nature of who God is and how God has worked and why, you know, God does some of the things he does for a lot of people. Uh, they will say, well, it just seems random that like God would do this. It's just random. Well, it's not random. He's, he's uh, hearkening you back to things that he has done throughout history with his people to say that, look, you know all this stuff we did? Well, here, now let me bring it to fruition. And, of course, that's all in Jesus. But this, this, all this stuff here is very important, and the bronze basin, that kind of stuff, we'll, we'll get to it. But I have to say something before we go any further. Thy strong word is uh, my favorite hymn, right? Um, and we sing it to close chapel every Wednesday. <laughs> nice. So we're like, when you were like, you want to be on thy strong word? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're certainly glad to have you. Yeah. I, in fact, awesome. I, I, I did a little, 
Well, I did a little, you know, pre-show research, and I was trying to see when was the last time uh, Pastor Hoffman was on KFUO, and I did find you, uh, but it wild back, wild back years ago on Concord Matters, and you've done some sermonettes, so I'm finally happy to have you on Thy Strong Word. It's great, and I guess I'm the first Northwest District pastor to be on this show, so I'm honored for that, too. Excellent. Wonderful. I'm certainly happy to have you. So we have our text here, the census tax. Anything more than that on that before we move on to the next half of our chapter? Okay. All right, we'll move on. So we'll start with the bronze basin, and certainly we can go back if we need to. Now, this is just going to be a couple verses, verses 17 through 21. We're moving outside the tabernacle now into the courtyard. The Lord said to Moses, You shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. And when they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near to the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to Yahweh, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. So once again, God gives his his instructions. He gives us what he wants it to be done with this particular thing. Pardon me, stumbling over my words. And he also gives us the consequence, which is death. We see that a lot. You know, God's wanting to bring us his mercy But mercy is meaningless without the understanding that when we are against God and his wishes, the consequences is death. But this bronze basin now, it's outside the tabernacle proper, but it's between the altar and, of course, the the tent itself. Uh, What is going on with this basin? Well, I, I like the point that you brought up about the death, and because that always harkens us back to the Garden of Eden. And the fact that we have this sort of this dead life that people are living when they're apart from God. And um, and so he's always his move is always to bring them uh, to bring them back into the life of of being with God. And so that this is going to be this is a section and this is not unique, uh, even though it's mentioned kind of uniquely here. Um, but it has this strong sense of history, and there is foreshadowing in this and several others. There's, you know, there's this, supposedly this bronze basin, right, that stands between the tent and the altar. And, and what kind of purpose does it serve? Well, it's, it's washing for Aaron and his sons um, that they may do before they can serve God and before they can be in his presence. I mean, the purpose is remarkable. Uh, and do this that you may not die. Well, like you said, I mean, that's, that's sobering. Literally a washing of the difference between life and death as you stand before God. So um, that should be a remarkable statement to hear that, to say, God says to do this. It comes with this. And so for a moment, uh, so for the moment, it was an important act because all the people saw these central figures in the temple. They were being washed. And, and of course, as our catechism was not as a removal of dirt from their bodies, but now it's entry into the presence of God. So there were several ceremonial washings, but this one uh, is such a clear show of God's word with his command and along with the water. 
So this is this is a really it's it's so central because again God will use washing with water um, throughout throughout the temple in Leviticus. It's going to become important, and we see here with the priests, it's very important that get ready. You're going to be approaching God to come to this altar. I mean, um, our baptismal font in our church here is placed at the foot of the steps leading up to the nave. You know, you've got to walk past it before you come to the rail. And, um, and so it's a very, it's a very uh, visual reminder. So this, this, uh, this central act here, it gets, it gets burned into the heart, the mind, the culture, the theology of Israel. Right for a specific reason, greater than for only preparing a priest, it will eventually. But rather, it's a foreshadowing of the baptismal preparation made for all who will serve God, all who will stand before Him with a clear conscience on the last day. So uh, another thing this book could do, it could really close a lot of theological gaps. You know, with those who do not look at the sacraments with anything more than kind of the 16th century philosophy or the 19th century rationalism, um, God's word will open that up to them. And, but I mean, you know, there's, there's so much here of, of the priests, the temple, everybody is being prepared to, uh, to be before God. And, and, and it harkens us back to who? It's John the baptizer, right? He's preparing the way. And so you just, there's, I mean, we're in the Advent season. You got to have John the baptizer. <laughs> So it's just like, oh my goodness, this is this is really important, and um, of this preparation of going to the temple. So it made the priests able to go in there, and down the road we're going to see that this priestly washing will be will be uh, enacted by the great high priest and the king of kings and the lord of lords, and so uh, that that's what it's going to be remarkable. Right, and even in this day, as we are a kingdom of priests, that connection should be extremely clear to folks. And also driving home your point is that in this section, it doesn't give us all of these details of how to make the bronze basin. That's in contrast to every little minute detail of the Ark of the Covenant and the altar and an altar of incense, even the tabernacle itself. And then it comes to the bra- the basin, and it tells us that it's made of bronze, but then its focus is what you shall do with it rather than what it looks like. Now, we do know, and we'll cover this in you know a few episodes from now, but in chapter 38, when it comes time to actually make the bronze basin, uh, he makes it out of uh, mirrors, these bronze mirrors that the scriptures say the ministering women who ministered in the entrance of the tent of meeting were using. So he, he takes these and repurposes them for the actual basin. And then by the time you get to Solomon's temple, there were uh, a much larger basin, right? It's much yeah. larger. Right, right now, it's just for the use of these particular priests. By the time you get to um, Solomon's, it's even bigger. And then by the time you get to uh, Herod's temple, you know, there's like I think ten or something of them. There's or eight. I don't know how many, but there's there's a ton of them. Everything keeps growing exponentially. But the point here is at the very beginning, it's not really about what it is, but what you do with it. As you so eloquently pointed out, right, they're washing themselves as they go in barefoot, mind you, into the most holy place. And people who've been listening to the show for a while know that I've mentioned this a couple of times. We have so 
lost the idea of holy ground and set apart spaces. And it's something that, you know, Jesus didn't do away with. He fulfilled it. He He's the one in which, you know, we are all holy, but then now we're all temples of God. So we're all set apart. But that doesn't mean he doesn't still come to us in these very special ways, as you've been pointing out in the word and the sacraments. And so even this Braun Basin, I love how you connected that to baptism. That's very Lutheran, but it's also very biblical because it's so <laughs> important that we remember that we, um, the penalty of not accessing God through Christ and the baptism of Christ and, and through the baptism we get is death. That's the only other option. You either go through Christ to God or you die eternally. And then we don't want that second one. Oh, yeah. And St. Paul saying that we were baptized into his death and resurrection. Oh, come on. This, that's remarkable. So, you know, right. St. Paul is a pretty good theologian, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he and the Holy Spirit, right? Well, yeah. I, so I tell you what, let's move on because the next section is kind of long. But what's really neat about it is, well, we have some anointing oil and incense and a recipe but the recipe is important because, as you pointed out earlier in the text, uh, unauthorized fire is just that, unauthorized. You have to do mm -hmm. as God has instructed you. So let's look at it, starting with verse 22 and be reading through the end of the chapter, which is 38. Yahweh said to Moses, take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is 250, and 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hin of olive oil. And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting, and the ark of the testimony, and the table, and all of its utensils, and the lampstand, and its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offerings, with all its utensils, and the basin, and its stand. You shall consecrate them, that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons, and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, This shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person, and you shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it or whoever puts any of it on an outsider shall be cut off from his people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take spices, sweet spices, a stacked and oncha and galbanum, sweet spices with pure frankincense, of each there shall be an equal part, and make an incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very small, and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I shall meet with you. It shall be most holy for you. And the incense that you shall make according to its composition you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for you holy to Yahweh. Whoever makes any like it so as to use his perfume shall be cut off from his people." <laughs> all right, quite a long text. Uh, don't know that I understand all the ingredients, but one thing I do know, and one thing that's very clear, is there is, there, don't be using this for your personal uses, right? There's no, uh, you know, oh, this is my new fragrance inspired by the smells of the temple. Uh, no, yeah. <laughs> this, oh, no, this is set apart. It is holy. But beginning with this anointing oil, um, you know, walk us through this. Actually, we could probably put this together. I recognize most of those ingredients. Well, it's kind of funny. Uh, you, you mean, 
the oil and incense are really interesting because the the measurements are very specific, like you said. There's like this recurring theme of 500, then having it. So literally he has to say 250 and 250. Now, <laughs> right. I'm going to be honest. I'm certain there's some Semitic significance to this, but I'd have to talk to someone like Pastor Parvi, the Kavi Shalom, the guy I go to for that, because he's really good at that stuff. But um, anyway, um, once the oils are mixed, you have what's a Mishhat Kadesh, the holy anointing oil. And um, this is where we commonly hear the term Meshiach, the Mishhat, um, and that's the word for Christ or Messiah meaning the anointed one. And this anointing is important. And, and see how it relates to the tents and the priests. As I was looking down this, um, when, and with the anointing oil, you, mishata, you anoint, one, the tent, two, the ark, three, the table, four, the lampstand. And they made sure to tell you all the utensils that go with the table and the lampstand and anoint all of them. And so, and by doing this, you have Kadeshat consecrated them to be holy, set apart, different from the normal and regular. Now they, along with the priests, become those who have been imparted with God's holiness, which designates Aaron's and his sons to be priests in his service in the temple. And interestingly, this oil isn't just some ceremonial oil. Uh, God actually says this oil and anointing, the making of priests is very specific, and it's not for everybody. So don't try and counterfeit the oil, because it's not for regular people to be messing around with. And remember, it's holy. Here's, we're back to saying, remember this. Remember, it's holy. Treat it holy. Um, uh, those who try and counterfeit it will be nikurat, a nifal form of karat, meaning they will be cut off, amputated, exterminated from God's people. Literally, they will be condemned. Why? Because it is the ministry of God, and it is very specific, and it's very important. Uh, remember 1 Samuel 13, when Saul grew tired of waiting for Samuel to come and make the offering um, that only Samuel was called to do? What did he do? He panicked. He lost faith and decided to take the matter into his own hands thus trying to take the matter out of God's hands. And, well, in the end, we saw what, what uh, Samuel said. He said, you've done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. 1 Samuel 13, uh, 13 and 14, right? So, you know, when God says, don't do this or you're out, <laughs> you got to take yeah. that seriously. So, Well, I know a lot of people who are out on Amazon. I just Googled it. You can get holy anointing oil for $10 <laughs> made with these ingredients. You know, I just think it's funny. I bring it up because... <laughs> I bring it up because, you know, we've we've taken what is supposed to be holy and made it so vulgar. And I do understand. I understand the history. I understand Christ being the temple. I understand these things being uh, adi offer in the sense that, you know, there is no command for us to use these things today. 
But what mm -hmm. I don't, I guess, appreciate as a liturgical pastor, as someone who wants people to be connected with their ancestors here, is that we, we've sort of made using it either a kind of a joke or you know something to bring home from the Holy Land as a souvenir, as opposed to the purposes for which it was intended. And that in this case, okay. it's the consecration. And we're going to talk more about the consecration um, at a different episode. But we see the we see the consecration here. Uh, it's setting it apart. And so even if you're not using incense or or anointing oil in your parish, you're still using vessels and utensils and furniture to be set mm -hmm. apart for the Lord's service. So you know if you're if you're at all able to worship in a place that you won't be playing basketball on Monday and then worshiping on Sunday. That's the goal to work for. Listen, I listen, I get it. People have to use multi-use spaces sometimes, but the goal is that we want to have holy spaces set apart and holy things. And I think sure. this worship of all the senses comes in handy here. And then oh. there's also an absolute practical side of it, which is uh, the incense and the anointing oil probably smell pretty nice. This would be yeah. in juxtaposition to the sacrifices, which certainly did not smell very nice. So I think You're God right. is such a God of practicality, too. Well, I like I really like the point you made. Yes, it is adiaphora in the sense that it's not commanded that we do it. But that doesn't mean we're supposed to lose respect for it. Because, for example, um, when I was when I was in seminary, I my. My field church was St. Lucas, right? It was, and, um, and in my Bible study, who just sat there, he was never teaching it because he was retired, was a pastor by the name of Yaroslav Vida. Now, Yaroslav Vida, of course, I'm, a, I'm from the Northwest. I'm not from the Midwest. There was a lot of stuff that I had to play catch up on when I got here. And it occurred to me, I was reading one of his books at the time, and I asked him, are you related to this guy? And he goes, well, yes, that's me. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my gosh. And, um, and so even though he was retired and, and, and he was not serving as the pastor there or anything, everybody always showed him strong respect and, and, and do, do him, even though he's not, he was, you know, it's like he's not the pastor anymore, but he sure got a lot of respect, and that's kind of the way we need to be with when we look at our holy spaces and things like that. It's not it's not because you're being coerced into it. It's because you're saying, well, this is some place where, where we will be encountering God in our worship, and we should just treat it like that and, and stop worrying about if God says you have to. Because that's kind of how children think, and um, and we, we need to be, have a more mature view than that. So, um even in the anointing, you see the ministry of reconciliation, right, being established and even carried into the New Testament. And as Dean Rockman always reminded us every day in seminary, not all of you should become teachers of the law, because those of you who do will be judged with a stricter judgment. That's burned into my sleep, you know, to take this all very, very seriously. So, um, I think, uh, I think, and I want to bring out what you just said. I think parishioners should uh, also understand that that not many of you should be teachers of the law in terms of the pastoral office, the preacher, teacher, but at, but that second part, you'll be held accountable. So if your pastor, you feel like, well, he just takes this part, whatever it is, just a little too seriously for me. 
Well, understand that he understands that at the end of time, he has to give an account for all those under his care. And that is a huge responsibility, which makes some of us sometimes appear to be a little stick in the mud. But it's also for our own good and, of course, because we really believe it for your good, too. I think that's a fair statement anyway. Well, you're very right. Um, I mean, the, the place where I live, and I call it home, Washington, Oregon, and Alaska, and Idaho, this is my district. I grew up in Washington, families from Alaska. Um, my wife and I made Oregon our home many years ago. Uh, and we have such, there's a very small Christian population here. And so um, we're always like on the outside. And, and, and there's two kind of ways that pastors tend to deal with it out here. On one hand, you've got the, the pastors that'll just kind of capitulate to the culture and just do whatever anybody wants them to do. And then you have the ones, God willing, like me, who will say, no, 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 no. I want you to see that we're, we're different from the culture, and that's not a bad thing. Um, I want you to come and, and, and be here and hear what God says, and I want you to hear and see what he does. And the people like, who generally join this church are people that came from like no background at all, so they're really kind of interesting uh, or they have like just the world's view of the church and and i'm saying well you might be right on some things you might be wrong but the only way you're going to find out is if you show up <laughs> so um right. and 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 you know having grown up as an atheist i i uh i get it and uh, and so I, i'll have these conversations with them and so but it's to say, I want you to know that this is important to us and it's not creepy. It's trust me. I can show you that it's not creepy. It's reverent because basically the view they'll have is that, well, you guys are kind of creepy because you, you have this high reverence for these things and, and I don't understand it. And it's scary. And, and it is a little bit because we are dealing with the one who through his word created all things. So it, it, it can have a sense of, being creepy, but it's, it's actually, it's, it's reverent and it's awe inspiring. And, and I think that's what they miss or what they're missing. And um, so, well, and it's all inspiring. What we've been reading throughout the scriptures over the past couple of days is God gives his instruction for the tabernacle and its surrounding area. Uh, we're at the end of our time though. I'd love to talk with you more, but we have to go. So I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Brant Hoffman pastor of Christ Lutheran Church and School in Coos Bay, Oregon. Thank you, Pastor, for being on the show. It was my pleasure and honor. Thank you for having me. And dear friends at home, thank you for hanging out with us this morning. Come back tomorrow as we go into chapter 31. God has chosen foremen for the construction, Aholiab and Bezalel. I always trip up on his name. Well, anyway, we'll also get an interesting aside on keeping the Sabbath. All of that tomorrow at 11 a.m. right here on KFUO. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray. Father, keep us in thy strong word.